0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Moving Toward the Future in MS Management What's the Latest on BTK Inhibition? Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash WGE860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Jiwon Oh, and I'm an MS neurologist from St. Michael's Hospital at the University of Toronto in Canada. Welcome to this educational activity on Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors and multiple sclerosis. I think many of you have heard quite a bit about Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or BTKIs, um, in MS. Um, And it probably is not an exaggeration to say that um, these molecules are um, the most intensely studied uh, experimental molecules um, in MS at the current time period. And you might be wondering why there is so much interest and excitement about these molecules. And this is because um, there are many um, potential advantages of using BTKIs in MS treatment over what we currently have. Um, Many studies over the years have shown that uh, chronic neuroinflammation um, contributes to this uh, smoldering disability that we see in in both relapsing and progressive forms of MS, Um, so across the entire spectrum of MS. And we know that this chronic smoldering inflammation is driven by um, B cells as well as microglia in the central nervous system. And it turns out uh, BTKIs um, have a profound effect in regulating B cells as well as activated microglia in the central nervous system. So it makes it a logical therapeutic target, not just in MS, but many other autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis as well. In addition, um, many of the existing MS therapies that we have act primarily outside the central nervous system, so they're very good at modulating peripherally mediated inflammation, which we know is a major component that drives um, MS pathophysiology. However, there is a whole another um, central compartmentalized um, smoldering inflammation that we know is responsible also for a significant amount of MS uh, pathophysiology, which results in um, progression over time, which is ultimately ultimately what we want to prevent. And BTKIs, unlike many of the um, other uh, therapies that we currently use in MS clinical practice, many of them have demonstrated an excellent ability to cross the blood-brain barrier and therefore reach therapeutic concentrations in the CNS, which means that they likely are able to um, have a beneficial effect, not just in the periphery, but also in these central compartmentalized processes, um, which is a huge unmet need in the therapeutic field. This is a slide just summarizing, again, the rationale of uh, BTK inhibition in MS. We know that BTK is an enzyme um, that is responsible for the modulation and proliferation of B cells, as well as uh, activated microglia within the central nervous system. And therefore, um, when you inhibit BTK, It has the potential to decrease B-cell maturation and proliferation, as well as the downstream functions of B-cells, which include autoantibody production, as well as cytokine secretion. Um, With microglia in the central nervous system, um, modulating the function of microglia via BTK inhibition has the potential to decrease microglial activation and downstream effects of microglial activation, which include the proliferation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are listed here. So, um, you know, BTK inhibition, um, you know, does have some overlap with uh, the anti-CD20 agents, which are a class of uh, molecule that are very commonly used currently um, in the MS uh, treatment uh, landscape. Um, We know that the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies are probably, at least in relapsing MS, one of the most highly effective drugs, and therefore it explains why they are so commonly used. Um, And these therapies mainly target B cells and essentially cause profound B cell depletion. And we know that there are very beneficial effects on relapse um, biology-related clinical and MRI measures. Because BTK inhibition can modulate um, B cells, we also know that there likely is um, a decrease in uh, B cells, which results in um, likely some of these beneficial effects that we've seen with anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies. However, there are distinct differences between BTKIs and anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies in that um, we know that the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies profoundly deplete B cells, and they therefore they are immunosuppressive agents. However, um, BTK inhibitors may um, not um, wipe out all uh, B cells and may therefore target um, only a subset of likely autoreactive B cells, and so it is possible that they may not have um, the same issues with as much uh, profound immunosuppression as we have seen um, with the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies. Um, the issue with um, immunosuppression and anti-CD20 agents was very clearly illustrated during the COVID-19 pandemic, when um, evidence from around the world pointed to the fact that um, being treated with an anti-CD20 agent um, was a risk um, for risk factor for developing severe uh, COVID infection. And this figure here. Um, illustrates the increased risk of uh, hospitalization related to COVID-19 with the use of uh, ocrelizumab and rituximab, which, as you know, are um, commonly used anti-CD20 agents um, in MS. Um, In addition, as with many of the um, um, other therapies that we use in MS, many which are also immunosuppressive Um, agents, Um, generally infections are um, uh, increased um, with the use of uh, different therapies, um, including anti-CD20 agents. So we're not just talking about COVID, but um, other infections. And so this issue with chronic immunosuppression becomes a relevant one with many of the therapies that we currently use um, in MS. And again, um, because um, BTKIs may uh, target specific sets of immune cells, it is possible that it may not cause um, as profound um, immunosuppressive effects as some of the other disease modifying treatments that we currently use in MS. So, um, you know, with that background, I think it's very clear why there is so much interest um, in BTKIs in MS. And as a result, um, there's many, many different uh, BTKIs currently being evaluated um, in MS clinical trials. And this is a table that summarizes all of the different um, BTKIs um, that are currently being tested, which include evobrutinib, tolebrutinib, as well as fenabrutinib and remibrutinib or relabrutinib, as well as um, a molecule that um, for now is being called um, BIB-91. Today we're going to focus on uh, phase two clinical trial results from tolibrutinib as well as evobrutinib. And the reason why we're doing this is because um, phase two trial data are really available only for um, these two BTKIs. So I'm just going to start with um, evobrutinib, um, which was the first uh, BTKi um, that reported results um, from a phase two clinical trial. Um, so um, very briefly, um, the study design uh, looked like this, um, where various doses of evobrutinib were evaluated uh, versus placebo, and there was also an active control arm of dimethyl fumarate. The initial um, blinded treatment period um, lasted for 20 week, 24 weeks, and then there was a blinded extension of 24 weeks where people continued on their current dose of evobrutinib. Um, except for the placebo arm in the initial 24-week trial, they were transitioned to the lowest dose of evobrutinib at 25 milligrams once a day. After that 24-week blinded extension um, of the initial phase 2 clinical trial, um, there was a safety follow-up of four weeks and then an open-label extension where initially patients were treated with evobrutinib at 75 milligrams once a day and then later transitioned um, to 75 milligrams twice a day, which is the dose that was eventually chosen um, for the phase 3 clinical uh, trials. Um, The primary endpoint, as with most phase two clinical trials of relapsing MS, um, was uh, the number of uh, gadolinium-enhancing lesions, as well as uh, various other MRI measures. And clinical endpoints, including annualized relapse rate, as well as EDSS scores, were evaluated. But it's important to note that, obviously, because this is a phase two clinical trial, it was not designed to evaluate the clinical endpoints. So in terms of the results from the evobrutinib phase 2 study, um, so evobrutinib at 75 milligrams once a day did meet the primary endpoint of a significant reduction in gadolinium-enhancing lesions versus placebo. The dose of 75 milligrams twice a day um, showed a trend towards a difference uh, versus placebo. When you look at safety, the rates of treatment emergent adverse events, including grade three and serious um, AEs, were comparable between um, most of the evobrutinib treatment arms, including the 25 and 75 milligrams once a day versus placebo, but was slightly higher with evobrutinib at 75 milligrams twice a day. and This was driven by asymptomatic increases in liver enzymes, which is a, uh, something that is seen. Um, with many of the uh, BTKIs that are currently being evaluated um, in the MS field. Um, there was a dose-response relationship that was aver- observed um, with the primary endpoint of gadolinium-enhancing lesions as well. When you look at some of the clinical endpoints, including annualized relapse rate, as you can see, numerically, um, there was a uh, what looked like a... Um, much lower um, annualized relapse rate between week 0 to 24 as well as between week 0 to 48 um, with the higher doses of evobrutinib but again because this was a phase 2 trial that was not um, powered to evaluate these clinical endpoints this different this this difference was not statistically significant this is a table just summarizing um, adverse events and so as we talked about as you can see Um, Generally, um, the incidence of serious adverse events was similar um, between uh, um, when you compare placebo as well as evobrutinib at the lower doses, but was slightly higher with evobrutinib at the 75 milligrams twice a day dose, and this was primarily driven by an increase in liver enzymes, as you can see here. Moving on, um, there have been additional analyses done um, using um, the phase two uh, clinical uh, trial data as well as extension data. And one analysis of uh, significant interest is um, looking at um, the effect of evobrutinib on slowly evolving or expanding lesions or cells. Um, in this uh, clinical trial. And the reason why this endpoint is of high interest in the MS field is because um, it is thought that slowly evolving or expanding lesions may capture um, chronic um, active lesions Um, which captures a component of that um, CNS compartmentalized um, smoldering neuroinflammation that I referred to earlier. And the reason why we focus so much on this is because it's thought that chronic active lesions are one of the primary drivers of this smoldering um, pathophysiology that we think is responsible for the progression that we see across the spectrum of MS. Now, as with any MRI measures, um, cells are not perfect, and likely do not capture all chronic active lesions. Um, And, you know, uh, there are all of these methodologic issues that um, the field is questioning, including, you know, how long do you monitor cells for, and all of these other things. Nonetheless, it's a very useful measure, because it likely does capture at least a component of these chronic active lesions that we're so interested in. So in this analysis, when the investigators looked at the effect of evobrutinib at higher doses, so evobrutinib at 75 milligrams once a day or twice a day, um, as you can see, these higher doses of evobrutinib did seem to um, lower um, uh, cell volume um, in comparison to the lower doses of evobrutinib as well as placebo. Now, this was just an analysis that took place over a relatively short time period of uh, 24 weeks. Um, Nonetheless, it's noteworthy because it does look like, again, that evobrutinib, at least at um, the highest dose, did seem to have a significant effect on reducing cells, which, again, we think may capture a component of chronic active um, inflammation, which, again, um, is a real focus in the field because this is thought to be the pathophysiologic substrate of progression in MS. Moving on, evobrutinib, after the initial uh, phase 2 clinical trial, so the blinded phase consisted of 24 weeks, um, then there was an open-label phase of 24 weeks, then an open-label extension that has continued on um, now for two and a half years. Um, The two and a half year extension data were recently reported. um, And as you can see, the majority of participants um, from the 48-week double-blind phase 2 trial entered um, the open-label extension. Um, And the majority, so 75%, had completed the 144 weeks of open-label extension treatment at the time of this data analysis. Um, What's reassuring is that the main efficacy endpoints um, that were evaluated in the initial Phase two trial, so the total number of gadolinium-enhancing lesions, Uh, Mean volume of T2 lesions all remained um, relatively low when patients switched to the 75 milligrams twice a day dose, um, which again is the dose that has been selected to be used in the phase three clinical trials of evobrutinib. In addition, when we look at clinical endpoints, and again, keep in mind that these studies were not powered to evaluate these endpoints. Nonetheless, it's useful to look at them over time to see how patients do. Overall, the EDSS scores remain stable and the annualized relapse rate also remained low um, in people after they switched to the 75 milligrams twice a day arm or continued on the 75 milligram twice a day arm. So overall, um, the extension data, which extends now up to two and a half years, um, are relatively reassuring because there have not been any new safety signals. And um, the clinical endpoints and MRI endpoints um, seem to be relatively stable, at least with the highest dose of evobrutinib. So we'll look forward to hearing what the results of the phase three clinical trial look like. Moving on. Tolibrutinib is the second uh, BTKI in the MS field that has um, made it um, uh, farthest along in clinical development and also has a completed uh, phase two clinical trial, as well as an extension study that now um, uh, extends out to the two year mark. Um, so the tolebrutinib phase two clinical trial um, looked like this. Um, and I think it's worth pausing on this study design for a moment because it's a very interesting and efficient study design that it allowed the evaluation of four different doses of tolabrutinib over a pretty short time period of 16 weeks, as you can see um, with the uh, double blind um, phase two clinical trial um, that you see illustrated on the left here. Um, After the initial uh, uh, 16-week double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial, where there was both a placebo run-in and a run-out, there was a bit of a gap period related to mainly administrative delays, and then patients entered long-term extension Part A, where they continued on the same dose of tolibrutinib that they had been on in the double-blind period. And then um, when the dose of 60 milligrams per day was decided on for the phase 3 clinical development program, all patients were then transitioned on to the highest dose of 60 milligrams per day. So with tolubrutinib in the initial 16-week phase 2 clinical trial, um, it did meet its primary endpoint of a reduction in gadolinium-enhancing lesions um, with the highest dose at 60 milligrams once a day. Um, In addition, numerically, there was a decrease in the clinical measures, including um, annualized relapse rate. And in terms of safety, um, in terms of a class effect, um, besides uh, what was expected to be seen, including an elevation in liver enzymes, as well as uh, nasal pharyngitis and upper respiratory tract infection, um, there weren't any other um, AEs of major concern observed. Um, the tolibrutinib um, phase two trial has now been, um, you know, all of the patients have, uh, were offered and uh, the vast majority of them continued on in the long-term extension study. And we now have up to two-year safety and clinical efficacy data from this long-term extension study that were presented at ECTRIMS. Um, so what's reassuring is that there are no new safety signals in the phase two um, extension Um, up to week 96. Um, The most common adverse events are listed here, and the most common AE was by far COVID-19, and the majority of cases were mild and moderate, and all patients uh, recovered. When we looked at efficacy outcomes, including annualized relapse rate and disability um, change from baseline, um, reassuringly, the annualized relapse rate remained low in those who had been treated with the highest dose of tolebrutinib at 60 milligrams for eight weeks or longer. And EDSS scores generally remain the same. Um, so all of these findings are relatively reassuring. Um, and it will be of interest to see what the phase 3 clinical trial results show. Moving on, um, when we look at uh, MRI data from the long-term extension study of tolibrutinib, um, there was also a slowly evolving or expanding lesion volume analysis that was done at week 96. And as you can see, um, those who were on tolibrutinib at 60 milligrams and 60 milligrams um, throughout Um, the long-term extension study appeared to have the lowest volume of slowly evolving or expanding lesions. Um, so um, these results are interesting, but again, because um, um, you know we're trying to understand in terms of monitoring, monitoring cells, what is the ideal um, duration over which you monitor them? What should be used as the baseline reference point? Um, these data are interesting, but definitely not uh, definitive. Um, and this statement applies to the discussion that we had with uh, cell volumes with evobrutinib data as well. Again, of high interest because likely cells can capture a component of chronic active lesions. However, it's difficult to interpret these data um, at the current time just because there are many questions about how to best evaluate cells over time so that it reflects um, an effect on chronic active or smoldering inflammation as we hope it does. In addition, there's another imaging measure called paramagnetic rim lesions that are obtained by um, uh, using appropriate susceptibility base sequences. And these measures are also of high interest in the field because it's thought that paramagnetic rim lesions also detect chronic active lesions, which again are of high interest. Um, over the time period that these patients were followed in the Tolabrutinib lo- uh, phase 2 long-term extension, there wasn't a lot of change in paramagnetic rim lesions. Um, two patients who had a paramagnetic rim lesion at baseline no longer had them at week 96. And there were three patients who had between one to three additional uh, paramagnetic rim lesions developed at week 96. And notably, none of these patients were in the 60 milligram, 60 milligram arm. Um, You know, again, interesting. Obviously, we'll need additional information to form um, better conclusions about what these data mean, Um, but um, it will be interesting and informative uh, informative to the field to continue to follow these patients um, because it will be um, uh, noteworthy if there is a clear effect on paramagnetic rim lesions as well as uh, slowly evolving or expanding lesions with the caveat that we're still trying to understand how to best use um, these measures. And reassuringly, um, those who were deemed to have highly active disease at study onset also maintained a low annualized relapse rate and low gadolinium lesion count and stable EDSS scores, um, which is additional information that is reassuring. We did talk about evobrutinib and tolebrutinib's Phase two trials in detail, and this is because these are the only two BTKIs that have completed Phase two clinical trials in people with MS. Both evobrutinib and tolebrutinib are being studied in phase three clinical trials. Evobrutinib is being evaluated in two um, phase three clinical trials of relapsing MS. um, And hopefully those study results uh, will be available in the next year or two. Tolibrutinib is being evaluated in a very extensive uh, clinical development program. In relapsing MS, there are two phase three clinical trials, um, but there also is a dedicated uh, trial evaluating tolibrutinib in primary progressive MS, as well as non-active secondary progressive MS. So amongst the BTKIs, it it is the uh, most extensive uh, clinical development program, as you can see in this table here. Fenebrutinib is another BTKI that is being evaluated in uh, three different clinical trials, um, two in relapsing MS and one um, dedicated to primary progressive MS. And notably in the Fentrepid trial, um, Fenebrutinib is being evaluated versus an active comparator of ocrelizumab, which is also quite unique. Finally, um, the next BTKI that is um, kind of um, furthest along in clinical development in the MS world is Remibrutinib that is currently being evaluated in two trials of relapsing MS, um, and those studies are currently still recruiting. So in terms of um, with this very busy experimental landscape, um, what does this all mean um, for the future of uh, using BTKIs in MS care? Um, I don't think there really ever has been a time where so many different molecules, um, technically part of the same um, class of drug or family of drug, have been studied um, at, at such a similar timeframe. Um, So I think some of the questions that come up as clinicians are, um, there's so many different trials evaluating different BTKIs. And is there a meaningful difference among molecules in this class? Um, And if there is a meaningful difference, what does it mean clinically? Are, Are there differences in efficacy? Are there differences in safety? And I think, um, you know, we can theorize a lot based on what we know about um, uh, the pharmacologic properties of many of these molecules, but in the end, the proof will be in the pudding. And this is because from a pharmacologic standpoint, there actually are um, many differences between these BTKIs. They do all belong to the same class of molecule in that they are um, uh, inhibitors of BTK. However, there are likely differences. Some of the differences may be subtle, but whether that means that it will have a meaningful difference clinically um, from an efficacy or safety standpoint, I think time will tell. Um, So there are differences in terms of CNS penetration of some of these BTKIs, um, their selectivity um, in terms of how much of an off-target effect that they have, because BTKIs are obviously um, BTK is not an enzyme only expressed in B-cells and microglia, which is what we focused on. It's an enzyme that's actually expressed uh, pretty widely. And so the selectivity may be a key piece in terms of determining safety. There's differences in how these BTKIs bind um, to their target, whether it's reversible or non-reversible, whether the interaction is covalent or non-covalent. And in terms of its domain target, there are also differences. So, um, you know, whether these differences will result in a meaningful um, clinical difference, um, it's not clear. But I think it's something very important to keep in mind um, as we um, wait to hear the results of these phase three clinical trials. So the question of you know how will we use BTK inhibitors in clinical practice is a very relevant one. As you heard um, from that very busy table that I presented to you, um, BTKIs are being studied across a wide spectrum of MS. Um, some of the BTKIs have a, a, a much more comprehensive clinical development program. Um, so it may be that different BTKIs may be suitable for different stages of disease. But of course, we'll have to see based on what the phase three clinical trial results show. Um, The question of where um, BTKIs may be used in the disease course is a relevant one. And again, I think all of this will depend on what we see in the clinical trials, as well as how the field evolves in terms of what we think about MS disease subtypes, how we classify MS, and what sort of molecules are most useful, and what pathophysiologic processes are most useful to target at different stages of disease when people probably have different amounts of relapse uh, biology versus uh, progressive biology. In addition, safety comes up. And again, um, this likely will um, have to do with the selectivity of different BTKIs. And so I think um, based on what we see in the phase three clinical trials and long-term extensions um, of uh, uh, safety, Um, we'll have to make um, decisions about what sort of patients are most suitable um, for different BTKIs. And as many of you know, just wanted to uh, make a quick note of the fact that there has been a partial clinical hold of recruitment for tolibrutinib um, clinical trials in the United States. And this is because um, of reports of isolated liver injury among some study participants in the phase three clinical development program. And this led the FDA to ask for a pause in recruitment for the tolibrutinib studies um, starting in June of 2022. So just a few months ago. Of note, most of the affected patients had comorbidities that are known to predispose them to drug-induced liver injuries, and the elevations in liver enzymes were reversible after drug discontinuation. Um, it's not very clear whether this is an issue related to tolabrutinib alone. Um, what is clear, though, is from the safety data that we have of different BTKIs, we do know that liver enzyme elevation is a risk with all of the BTKIs. Um, so it is possible that this is uh, likely a class effect, and the fact that Tolibrutinib has a much larger clinical development program, um, may have resulted in just larger numbers of people being treated and um, some having more severe drug induced liver injury. But obviously, um, we will hate, um, we look forward to hearing um, more results about um, these patients and what the final decision is about the Tolibrutinib program. Um, There were some interesting abstracts that were presented on BTK inhibitors at the very recent ECTRIMS Congress, uh, which just took place in Amsterdam. Um, This question of uh, um, uh, disease rebound after drug discontinuation is a relevant one because of um, the field's experience with S1P receptor agonists as well as uh, natalizumab. And so the phase two clinical trial design with the placebo wash-in and wash-out period allowed for at least a brief assessment of whether there is rebound in the four weeks after drug discontinuation. And in this um, um, preliminary analysis, there was no suggestion of any um, uh, drug discontinuation-related rebound disease activity with tolibrutinib, which is reassuring. But obviously, longer observation periods are needed to validate these findings. Um, in one interesting in vitro trial that assessed selectivity amongst uh, many of the uh, BTKIs, um, Remibrutinib, fenibrutinib, evobrutinib, and tolibrutinib, as well as arelibrutinib, so um, almost all of the BTKIs that we discussed are being evaluated in MS, um, the investigators ranked Remibrutinib as having the least off-target binding, um, which is interesting information to note. Um, as we discussed, there are many pharmacologic differences amongst the BTKIs uh, being studied, and selectivity may have to do with um, ultimate safety profile. But again, we'll obviously have to um, see based on what we see in clinical trial results. Finally, um, a very interesting study um, by Dybowski et al um, looked at um, an animal model of MS, um, EAE, which is a model we're all pretty familiar with. um, And they found that when um, an anti-CD20 agent is followed by a BTK inhibitor, there seemed to be um, significant clinical benefit um, in EAE. So in this study, mice received uh, a number of doses of anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody and then a number of doses of evobrutinib before being immunized with a B-cell mediated model of EAE. And what the investigators found was that the anti-CD20 agent had a mild benefit on clinical EAE, but disease severity was diminished significantly when you added on evobrutinib after the anti-CD20 agent. And it was postulated that this is because B-cell maturation was blocked and the reappearance of uh, mature, naive B-cells, as well as um, what are likely pathogenic memory B-cells, were delayed by the addition of the BTKi. Now, obviously, these are preclinical studies, but this is of interest because this suggests that the sequential combination of BTK inhibition with B cell depletion Um, may be beneficial um, from an EAD standpoint. And obviously, the studies need to be done in humans. But this is uh, potentially um, something that could be thought about um, when thinking about how these agents, if they prove to be effective in phase three clinical trials of MS, um, could be used um, in um, with respect to sequencing in MS clinical care. So with that, I hope that I've been able to um, give you an idea of um, BTK eyes in general, um, why there's so much excitement on um, using them, um, because they have a role in B cells and microglia and MS pathophysiology. Um, and why it makes to leverage the therapeutic potential of BTK inhibition in MS. Um, I hope I've been able to summarize um, some of the promising long-term data from phase two trials that justify all of these phase three clinical trials of these various agents. And then, um, you know, the results of the phase three trials will help us um, understand how each BTK inhibitor needs to be evaluated, how they can be used um, in clinical practice and, you um, Their heterogeneity should also caution us against considering them interchangeable drugs. So with that, um, this concludes our educational activity, and I'd like to thank you for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com/ forward slash WGE860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi.